Well, if you would turn to Genesis chapter 3, and as Dan and Peggy highlighted earlier, this is Prophecy Advent Sunday, and we are going back to the very first prophecy in the Bible, and it is found in Genesis chapter 3. And so what we want to do this morning, in light of the first Sunday of Advent, is to think about what we find in Genesis 3 about the origin of Christmas. Now, when people think about the origin of Christmas, a lot of times they'll think in terms of when was the first point at which people began to actually celebrate the birth of Christ. And it appears that it wasn't right away historically, but eventually, whether it was in the 2nd century A.D. or the 4th century, certainly by the 4th century at least, there was an official... Uh, celebration of the birth of Christ in the church. Uh, In terms of the kinds of things we do today, like Christmas trees and things like that, most people will look a little later in history, uh, probably in the uh, 16th century, the 1500s or so. Some would say that maybe Martin Luther played some role in highlighting uh, the pine tree as a fitting uh, tree Uh, to use in the celebration of Christmas. And so there were other things that happened around that time, around the Middle Ages, that are still reflected in the kinds of things we do today. But when we think about the origin of Christmas, we really have to go further back than the second uh, century. We have to go all the way back to the foundation of the world in terms of creation and what God did right at the very beginning. And the reason for that is... Sometimes, um, well, many times in our world, uh, people have no idea what the significance is of Christmas. They think about Santa and other things along those lines. Or if they do think about Jesus, they don't think about Jesus in terms of what it says in Genesis chapter 3. And what we find in Genesis chapter 3 is what someone has called the biblical a story of Humpty Dumpty. Um, many of us are familiar with that nursery rhyme that was actually written somewhere around 1810 or so, so it's a very old nursery rhyme. And the nursery rhyme goes, as you probably recall, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Now, initially, it appears that that was a riddle, And the question was, who's Humpty? Who's Humpty Dumpty? What is Humpty Dumpty? And eventually, uh, people began to think of Humpty Dumpty in terms of something like an egg. Because if you think of an egg, uh, one of the things that if it's broken is impossible to put back together is an egg. And so that's why in our day and time, typically when you see pictures of Humpty Dumpty, He's in an egg shape, sitting on a wall, then maybe splattered on the ground, and he's like a broken egg. And as someone has said, um, the person who wrote this evidently was basically raising the question, what when broken can never be repaired, not even by strong or wise individuals, like all the king's men and their horses? And the response is, any child knows that an egg can't be repaired once broken. And so it's a picture of the world we live in. That was actually mentioned in the Advent reading this morning, that we live in a broken world. And all kinds of people are trying to fix it. And a lot of what is happening in our world today, and even in our own country, is man's attempt to fix a broken world. Is man's attempt to somehow... Uh, clean up the mess that has resulted from what we call the fall, the fall of man that's recorded in Genesis chapter 3. And so in the first six verses, we have the fall of man into sin, and the rest of the chapter, we have the consequences of the fall on all of creation. And then in the verse 15, in the midst of the chapter, we have a promise that rises out of the ashes. And so that's what I'd like for us to look at uh, this morning. Uh, but before we look at the first three verses, let me just remind us of something. We've talked a lot about what's going on in our world. As, as Dan highlighted earlier, 
And one of the things that Jane and I talked about just this week is that it's hard to understand what governments are doing and the decisions that they're making unless you realize that these governments, in some sense, have a vision that they're trying to fulfill. And it's a vision that you can find online, and they have conferences that are named after the very vision that they're talking about, and it's called the Great Reset. And COVID is seen as an opportunity, not just something that needs to be dealt with as a health issue, but an opportunity to move the world forward, to try to clean up the mess of this broken world. And so therefore, it's hard to understand what's going on and the decisions that are being made unless you understand that there is an agenda, there is an attempt to clean up this broken mess that we find in this world, and it's it's based on what they call the Great Reset Agenda. But it's even more important for us as Christians to realize that you, we can't understand what's going on in the world unless we understand that God has a Great Reset Agenda. And that was highlighted in the Advent reading as well. In one sense, we look back to what Christ did for us, but we look forward to the return of Christ and the new heavens and the new earth, which is the divine great reset that we're moving toward. And so uh, a lot of people over the history of the church have summarized the biblical story from Genesis to Revelation in terms of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Creation is in Genesis. Consummation is the new heaven and new earth that we find at the end of Revelation. Then in, in between, we have the fall, and redemption is Christ coming the first time to live and die and rise again. We can expand that storyline by talking in terms of creation, fall, promise, preparation, redemption, proclamation, and consummation. Because we're in the age of proclamation. Uh, God made a promise after the fall. He prepared for the coming of Christ in the Old Testament. Jesus comes in his first advent. He redeems his people through his death on the cross. The church has been um, given the task of proclaiming that good news until he returns. And he consummates all things. And so what we see in Genesis 3 is uh, what took place after creation. Then we see happening in this chapter the fall and the promise. It's the first prophecy that we celebrate in Advent. So let me read the first six verses for us as we begin to uh, think about this very, very important way of understanding what is happening for us in our celebration of Christmas. In verse 1 it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Now there are a lot of people that look at this story, especially because of the talking snake, and think this must be a myth. This must be a fable. This must be a parable or something that wasn't historically true and yet it was historically true certainly the the writers uh, in the new testament thought so paul said twice in second corinthians 11 he says but i'm afraid that as the serpent deceived eve by his craftiness your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to christ so paul certainly believed this that this was a uh, an historical event not just a parable or a a, um, fictional story to make a point he says the same kind of thing in first timothy 2 
when he says, it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And so we have here a true story, as surprising and as unusual as it may sound. Um, What we find happening here is in chapter 1, you have the creation of the universe, you have the creation of paradise, and then in chapter 2, you have the details with regard to the creation of man and woman. And then in chapter 3, you have this account of this serpent who comes into a perfect world. Perfect man, perfect woman, perfect God, perfect paradise. And you have this serpent who shows up. And we find um, that this is ultimately pointing to Satan. Now, we don't find in the account where it says this is Satan uh, involved in this. But later on, Twice in the book of Revelation, it speaks of the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. And so it's very, very clear if you read the rest of the scriptures that the understanding of what's taking place here is that, yes, this this was a literal snake, but it wasn't just a snake. It was Satan who was using this serpent, this snake, to tempt Eve. And evidently, uh, Satan was smart enough to pick the best tool he could find because he picks, it says in verse 1, the most crafty beast of the field. Now, someone has commented on that and said um, that the serpent was more crafty than the other animals, which means they must have had some craftiness too. That there was some intelligence among the animals that maybe as a result of the fall that there's not that same intelligence anymore which is an interesting thing to think about. But we look at this and we think, how in the world did Eve not just scream and run away when this serpent begins talking to her? And so different people have speculated on that and thought, well, maybe maybe before the fall, all the animals talked. Someone like C.S. Lewis might be inclined to think, of, think along those lines, the beast talking. Uh, some might say that the higher animals were able to talk before the fall. Some would say maybe Eve was just so inexperienced that she thought, well, this is just a new discovery, a talking animal. haven't run across this before, but this is interesting. It could be that um, in light of how the serpent is judged, made to go on its belly and eat dust, that it wasn't like that before the fall. And some believe that maybe it did have legs, Maybe it even stood upright. Maybe it could look Eve in the eye. Maybe it wasn't just what we would see today, but had a glory and a beauty about it. And maybe she was kind of in awe of this creature as it appeared before her. And then some speculate that maybe, um, Matthew Henry mentions this, that some may uh, have the idea that maybe um, the serpent said, you know what, I'm different from all the other animals. And let me tell you why I'm different, because I ate from this tree. And it caused me to be able to have a wisdom that I didn't have before and to be able to talk like I could not talk before. So who knows what all was involved there, but there was something about it that caused her not to run away in fear, caused her to be open to what... uh, the snake was saying. And Satan um, puts God in the worst possible light. Early in chapter 2, uh, verse 16, God says, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely except one. Satan reverses that and says, So, understand that God has told you that you can't eat from any of these trees. Putting God in the very worst possible light that he could. Now, uh, Eve's response is, oh, no, no, we can eat from all the trees of the garden except this one, and we're not even to touch it. Now, some people look at that and say, well, maybe Eve was adding to the word of God. Um, God had said earlier in chapter 2, verse 17, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. And so she adds to it, can't even touch it. 
And some think that maybe she's already beginning to doubt God and maybe reshape his word somehow in her own mind. Others would say that maybe Adam had conveyed the command to Eve because God speaks to Adam in chapter 2, not Eve. And that maybe Adam said, you know what? I think it would be best if we don't even touch it. God said, don't eat from it. I think we should maybe not even get near it, not touch it. The Bible says to avoid temptation, right? Don't, don't get as close as you can to it. Don't hold it in your hand and smell it and that kind of thing. Get away from it. So some think maybe it was something that Adam had encouraged Eve. Others would simply say, like Calvin, it was just a reasonable inference that if you're not supposed to eat from it, then it's, you probably shouldn't even touch it. And so there's different ways of thinking about what's going on there, but it kind of just gives us a feel for the kind of temptation that lies before Eve. And so, as I said, Satan is using a snake. He's using an animal in the garden. And the Bible tells us that the word Satan means adversary and the word devil means slanderer. And so what is the, the devil doing here? He's actually an adversary to Adam and Eve. He's not a friend, but he comes as a a friend. But he's really their enemy. And he comes to bring destruction to them by doing what? By slandering God. He doesn't come slandering them. He comes slandering God. He's not their friend. He's their enemy. And he's their enemy by slandering the God who created them. And basically what he does is, as I said before, he puts God in the worst possible light. He says, you know, God's so unreasonable, he won't let you eat from any of these trees, right? Or God is such a liar, because he said you would die, and you're not going to die if you eat from this tree. In fact, God is really evil. You know why? Because he knows if you eat from this tree, you'll become like him. So he's withholding something from you that is good, and that he really owes you. He's really evil. So amazing. Evil is calling good evil. And that's what happens even in a society. We begin to call good evil and evil good. And that happened very much at the very beginning of time. We see the same kind of things uh, happening in the book of Job. You remember it's very clear at the beginning of the book of Job that Satan's involved in what's going on in Job's temptation. And it says that Satan's goal uh, in tempting Job was, as it says in verse 11 of chapter 1, he tells God, put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, speaking of Job, and he, Job, will surely curse you to your face. So what does Satan want? He wants us to curse God. He wants us to curse God in the sense that we don't believe God. We don't trust God. We believe that God is unreasonable, that God is a liar, that God is evil. And therefore we curse him. Uh, we, that's, that tends to be our reaction to those we feel are unreasonable, they're liars, and they're evil. We think they deserve to be cursed. And that's exactly what is taking place in this scenario here with Adam and Eve. It's Satan's goal that ultimately they would curse God and die. Because you remember the words out of Job's wife's mouth, which he used uh, Job's wife to speak to him at one point, And she says, do you still hold fast your integrity after he's beginning to suffer? Curse God and die. Now she meant curse God and just give up on life. Satan meant curse God and experience the ultimate death. Because that is the spirit of Satan. Satan wants us to curse God and experience ultimate death, separation from God, the, the wrath of God, not anything good. And so we see here that... Um, Eve is listening to all this. And you notice it says um, in verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was all these things, good for food, delight to the eyes, uh, that the tree was desirable to make one wise. The implication is she didn't see it that way before. 
when she saw it that way. And why did she see it that way? Because she began to doubt the word of God about the tree. She began to believe the lies of the enemy about the tree. All of a sudden, the forbidden fruit, the fruit that I can't even touch and I don't even want to touch, is now something I have to have. Why? Because she believed the lie. Indeed, as Matthew Henry has said, she began to think, what, what hurt could it do them? Why should this be forbidden rather than uh, any of the rest of the trees? And he goes on to say, when there is the thought that there is no more harm in forbidden fruit than in any other th- fruit, sin lies at the door. When God says this is wrong, this is forbidden, this is not good for you, it's not good for others, and then we begin to see that fruit in a different light. We begin to see it as a good thing. Um, How could this be so wrong? How could something that feels so right not be wrong? How could something that feels so good not be good? And so we find that, as he says, sin lies at the door. He says it's interesting that certainly this must have began to arise in Eve's heart and it's in all of our hearts ever since then is that we sinfully and naturally desire what is prohibited. Just tell a child you can't touch that and immediately they want to touch that. It's the way it works. And Matthew Henry says she imagined more virtue in this tree than in any of the rest. That it was a tree not only to be dreaded, excuse me, not only not to be dreaded, but to be desired to make one wise, and therein excelling all the rest of the trees. This she saw, that is, she perceived and understood it by what the devil had said to her, and some think that she saw the serpent eat of that tree, and that he told her he thereby had gained the faculties of speech and reason. When she inferred its power to make one wise and was persuaded to think, If it made a brute creature rational, why might it not make a rational creature divine? So all of this is playing into the temptation and Eve being deceived eats from the tree. Now it says, it goes on to say that she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. It appears that he was not with her in this discussion with the serpent. Serpent leaves She eats and she offers it to her husband as well. And the the thing about it is, is that the Bible says Eve was deceived, but Adam wasn't. Which means he knew exactly what he was doing. Eve was somewhat confused, misled. Adam saw very clearly what the choice was. And the question is, what was the decision at that point for Adam? He saw that his wife that he loved, this woman that had been everything that he had looked for in all the animals, had eaten from this tree and he knew it will mean death for her. So I have a choice, God or Eve. That's what some people think. Some people would say, no, uh, Eve relayed to Adam the arguments of Satan and Eve gave into it. I mean, excuse me, Adam gave into it. Calvin would say more than likely that he was captivated with her allurements, that it was Eve herself and the loss of Eve that actually was something that Adam couldn't live with. And if you read the poem by John Milton, Paradise Lost, that's exactly the way it's portrayed in that poem on the fall that Adam says something like, O fairest of creation, last and best of all God's works. Talking about Eve. He says, How art thou lost, how on, how on a sudden lost, to face deflowered, and now to death devoted. He says, Me with thee hath ruined, for with thee certain my resolution is to die. So the idea is he makes a choice. He realizes that the choice is between God and the tree at best, or maybe God and Eve. But however you put it, the choice was between God and a creature. That's why it says in Romans chapter 1, 
that we have basically uh, worshipped the creature or the creation rather than the creator. So whether it was the tree that Adam was focused on or whether it was Eve that Adam was focused on, he decided to worship, to devote himself to the creature or the creation instead of the creator. And he fell. And the question is, what happened at that point? So if you would look at verses 7 through the remainder of the chapter. It says, And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you, whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. O thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate it, excuse me, to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Matthew Henry says about uh, the fall, it was certainly both the greatest treachery and the greatest cruelty that ever was. The greatest treachery, why? Because it was treachery toward a perfect God who had made them innocent and upright, had put them in a perfect paradise, and it only said, do not eat from this one tree. One prohibition. He says it was the greatest cruelty because as the head of the human race, Adam plunged all of us into sin and depravity and distance from God and cast us all out of paradise. It says in Romans 5, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So what we see in here is their eyes were opened. I mean, Satan said your eyes are going to be opened, and that was true in a sense, but not in the sense that they thought it would be. I mean, Satan and sin always promises us something, and there may be some truth in it, but it's not everything that we want it to be and can never be that. So their eyes are open and they know that they're naked. They try to cover their nakedness and they hide themselves. And the question is, at the end of chapter 2, in verse 25, it says, The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. But then in verse 7, it says, And the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings, which means now 
They see that they're naked and they're ashamed. So what changed? What happened there? Well, different people have speculated. Obviously, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly why that was. Some would say that Adam and Eve were clothed in some sort of divine glory, which they lost in the fall. Others would say that they, at that point, looked at each other differently. They actually began to have inappropriate thoughts toward each other, even inappropriate sexual desires toward each other. Some would say they began to feel insecure in the presence of the other person because now they could not trust each other. And it was dangerous to be naked in front of someone you don't trust. Others would say that regardless of how all of that may have played out, it certainly was pointing to not only physical nakedness, but spiritual nakedness. That somehow they sensed that they had lost their innocence, their righteousness, their uprightness, and that they needed to hide. They needed to cover themselves. And so what happens is um, God shows up and he begins to ask questions. And Adam doesn't say, I've sinned, I need your mercy. What he says is, this woman that you gave me, gave me from the tree and I ate. So he blames God by way of blaming Eve. And then when Eve is questioned about why she did what she did, she says, the serpent deceived me. It's his fault. The devil made me do it, is what happened there. Someone has talked about the the fact that that is something that plagues every one of us even today, that we play the blame game. Uh, There's a story about uh, a baseball manager who was really frustrated with his center fielder, and he went out and he he took him out of the game, and he said, I'm going to play center field myself because you're so terrible. And three balls were hit to the manager while he's out in center field, and one of them takes a bad hop and hits the manager in the mouth. Another one is hit real high and gets lost in the sun, and it hits him on top of the head. Another one is a line drive that uh, is uh, hit straight toward him, and it hits him in the eye. And the manager runs to the dugout, grabs the center fielder by the um, collar, and he says, you idiot, you've got center field so messed up that I can't even do anything with it. The blame was placed on somebody else. We laugh at that. We think, ah, nobody would be so crazy to think that it was his fault. But we do it all the time. We place the blame on somebody else. We live in a culture that is pointing fingers, saying, I am where I am because of you. And therefore, I need to have what you have because you've stolen it from me. We live in a culture that is always looking at blaming someone else for why we do what we do. And all of us are that way naturally. Um, Again, Matthew Henry says, there is a strange proneness in those that are tempted to say that they are tempted of God. So ultimately, when you think about what's happening here is both Adam and Eve are ultimately blaming God because of providence, right? Uh, You providentially gave me this woman. And she gave me from the tree to eat. So ultimately, it's your fault, God. Ultimately, you created this serpent. And you allowed this serpent into the garden. You allowed this serpent to tempt me. So it's really your fault, God, that I did what I did. It all goes back to God. That's why Matthew Henry says, there's a strange proneness in those that are tempted to say that they are tempted of God, as if I are abusing God's gifts but excuse our violation of God's laws. God gives us riches, honors, and relations that we may serve him cheerfully in the enjoyment of them. But if we take occasion from them to sin against him, instead of blaming providence or blaming God, providence with a capital P, for putting us into such a condition, we must blame ourselves for perverting the gracious designs of providence therein. The Bible makes it very, very clear that we're not going to be held accountable before God for the sins of other people. Neither will we be able to stand before God on Judgment Day and say, I lived the life I lived because of all those people over there. We will be held personally accountable for our own sin. 
however the, the sins of others may have been a part of the picture. So we see uh, all this going on, and you notice that God brings uh, consequences on the, the snake first. Adam accuses Eve, Eve accuses the serpent, so God starts with the serpent. And says, this is the consequence of what you've done. And you notice there's no questioning of the serpent. God questions Adam and Eve. Where are you? Why did you do this? But there's no questioning of the serpent. Why is that? Well, the serpent is being used by Satan. And Satan has already fallen. The fall of Satan happens before the fall of man. And so there was no mercy extended to Satan and the fallen angels. And so no mercy is conveyed through what God says to Satan. But some, according to Matthew Henry, have argued that maybe this involvement of Satan in the fall of man actually sealed the fate of Satan and the fallen angels. That at that point, God decided, so to speak, that there's no mercy, that there future was settled. An interesting thing. Um, Matthew Henry says something, the condition of the fallen angels was not declared desperate and helpless until now that they had seduced man into the rebellion. So anyway, God speaks first to the serpent and then he goes on to speak to the woman about pain in childbirth, um, the desire for her husband Uh, That desire for a husband, uh, in light of what it says in chapter 4 about that kind of desire, is um, not just a desire to be with her husband, but a desire to control her husband, which is sort of a consequence of what actually took place in the fall. And it says that um, her husband would rule over her, not just in in terms of being her head, which is what God was designing all along, but in terms of ruling, as it says in other places in the scripture, ruling with severity. So what's going on here? Why is God saying that now this is what your world is going to look like? You as a wife are now going to not only want to want to be with your husband, husband but to rule over your husband. And your husband isn't always going to be loving and kind. There are many times when he's going to be abusive. He's going to misuse his uh, authority. And you see that in the history of the world, don't we? We see that playing out in so many ways. And so really what we have going on here is God's um, justice taking place in which he's giving a fitting punishment for the crime. And it's sort of like what we see in Romans chapter 1 when it says that God, because of this trading in the creator for the creation, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, or God gave them over to degrading passions, or God gave them over to a depraved mind. What is that in Romans 1? Because of this sin, I'm giving you over to more sin. The consequence of sin is sin. Sin is not a blessing. Sin is a judgment. And so that's what's happening here is God says, because of your sin you will live in a world where the sin abounds. That's going to be even worse than you can imagine. And so for Adam, the ground was cursed. He has to work hard to make a living, and eventually he will die. Now, if we read Romans 8, we find out that it basically says that all of creation groans like a woman waiting to give birth, looking forward to being set free because... The whole of creation has been subject to futility. It's not everything that God intended it to be. It's been enslaved and it's much less than what God intended. And so what we have here is a situation in which Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the question is, what was what were they really after? Well, some would say they were after knowledge that they really didn't deserve to have or really need to have. They had this sinful curiosity. There's, I want to know more than what God has told me. Some would say that ultimately 
what Satan was after was for, to get them to experience the evil that they were curious about. I think it even goes further than those two ideas. I think the idea of knowledge, people say knowledge is power. It's even reflected in the Proverbs in various ways. To know something is to be able to create control. So when it, when it says they want to be like God, what does it mean to be God? It means to be in control. God is sovereign. God is God. God is in control. That's what it means to be God. And if I have certain knowledge... Maybe I can be like God. I can be in control. Maybe I can be in control even in the sense of determining what is right and wrong. I can control my life. I control my fate. I can have what I want. I won't be dependent on God anymore. And so we see the fall from dependence on God and fellowship with God. And yet we ask ourselves, how does God respond Does he respond like what we see in Revelation, like Jesus on a white horse coming back with a sword in his mouth? No. Does it respond like what we see on Sinai when the law is being given with thunder and dark clouds and lightning and it's so, so ominous that the people tremble. They're afraid. Is that what happens? No. What happens? What happens is it says in verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Think about that. God's walking toward them. He doesn't immediately strike them dead. In fact, Adam lives to be 930 years old. He comes to them. He doesn't run away from them. He asked them questions to get a confession that he might extend mercy to them. He punishes the serpent first with no mercy, but he promises the defeat of the serpent to Adam and Eve. He gives the woman temporal consequences that fit her crime. He gives the man temporal consequences that fit his crime. But he gives them these things also that they might be reminders of the misery that sin brings, that he's not lying to them when he says sin brings death. He's not lying to them when he says sin brings misery. He's not lying to them when he says you will never be happy disobeying me. He extends their lives to give time for repentance. He gave Adam hope for a savior through his wife. He gave Eve hope for a savior through her life. He sacrificed others to clothe the nakedness of Adam and Eve. He prevents them from eating the tree of life and extending their misery indefinitely. And he magnifies his word as the only trustworthy voice to follow. It's kind of like the story of the holy man that I've told a number of times who's uh, having his meditations on this riverbank and he's sitting beneath the tree and the roots go out into the water And he notices a scorpion that is caught in the roots and the water's rising up and the scorpion's going to drown if it doesn't get out. So the holy man gets on his knees and he crawls out and he begins reaching toward the scorpion. The scorpion is continually striking at the man. And somebody else comes by and says, don't you know that it's in the nature of a scorpion to strike? He says, yes, but why should I change my nature simply because of his nature. You see what's happening in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, that God comes to them. They're they're caught in a position where they're about to drown in their sin, and God is reaching out to them. And what are they they doing? Striking at God. It's your fault, God. It's your fault that I'm here. It's your fault that I'm drowning. It's your fault. It's your fault. It's your fault. God goes toward them. He doesn't go away. He doesn't say, fine, drown. Fine, you and your posterity will go to hell. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. He shows mercy. As Matthew Henry again says, it was the approach of the judge that put them into a fright, and yet he came in such a manner as made it formidable only to guilty consciences. He says, 
you have to wonder uh, what all God was saying when he was approaching them. And again, Matthew Henry says, some people think that maybe God was conversing with himself like he conversed over Israel when Israel was in their sin. And maybe said something like, how shall I give them up? How shall I give them up? There's a book that we've been going through in our small group, Gentle and Lowly. There's a quote in there in our reading for this week that Jonathan Edwards says when he says, God has no pleasure in the destruction or calamity of persons or people. He had rather they should turn and continue in peace. He is well pleased if they forsake their evil ways that he may not have occasion to execute his wrath upon them. He is a God that delights in mercy and judgment is his strange work. God doesn't ride into the garden on the horse of judgment ready to strike them down even though they're ready to strike him down, he comes to show mercy. And Dane Ortland comments on that. He says, we tend to think divine anger is pent up, spring-loaded, and divine mercy is slow to build up. He says it's just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. The idea is we think God is more eager to judge us than he is to show us mercy. Genesis 3 says it's just the opposite. He's ready to show us mercy. And he will only show us justice if we refuse his mercy. Again, in the book, Gentle and Lowly, it says, The fall in Genesis 3 not only sent us into condemnation and exile, the fall also entrenched in our own minds dark thoughts of God, thoughts that are only dug out over multiple exposures to the gospel over many years. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool toward him in the wake of it. Satan's goal was to ruin our perception of God and to believe the worst about him. And he succeeded. We naturally think the worst of God, not the best of God. Especially when we read about the God of the Bible. We read about the God of the Bible and we especially think of God as being someone that we would not want to meet. And yet it's just the opposite. There, as I close, there are three trees mentioned in Genesis chapter 3. One tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil which is ultimately a tree of knowledge that will allow us to be our own gods, to to determine our own right and wrong, to be in control of our lives. And that's always the temptation for all, all of us, is to be in charge of our own lives. The second tree is the tree of life, which God said, I'm going to remove them from the garden, lest they continue in their misery forever. The tree of life represents not some sort of automatic, I eat of this tree, I get life, but it represents the gracious gift of eternal life. But there's another tree, and it's the tree of bruising. It's not explicitly mentioned. When When it says in verse 15, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel, it's pointing to the cross, because the he there is referring to Christ bruising Satan on the head. And yet Satan will bruise Christ on the heel. So that Christmas is a celebration of the seed of the woman, which many people see as a reference to the virgin birth. And therefore, the virgin birth of Christ, the seed of the woman, was necessary for the provision of the cross to crush the serpent and open the way back to the tree of life. It says in Matthew 1, But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. There are those who look at Revelation 13.8, and one way to translate that is, All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In what sense would Christ be slain from the foundation of the world? In the sense that it was prophesied that Satan would bruise his heel, but he would crush his head. He would crush evil, and he would do it for his people that they might be able to eat from the tree of life. So as we conclude, let me just uh, remind you of something that a missionary doctor said. He said the early Christians didn't look at the world and how bad it was and, and say, look how terrible things are, which is our temptation right now, is to look at the world and say, look how terrible things are. Look, at, look what the world has come to in our country. He says the early Christians, and this should be true of us too, said, look what has come into the world. Not what has the world come to, but look at what has come into the world. He said, they saw not merely the ruin, but the resource for the reconstruction of that ruin. They saw not merely that sin did abound, but that grace did much more abound. On that assurance, the pivot of history swung from blank despair loss of moral nerve and fatalism to faith and confidence that at last sin had met its match. That was prophesied in the garden. That was fulfilled in Jesus. And that is our hope today. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would encourage our hearts. We do live in a dark time, darker in ways that we maybe never expected to see in our own lifetime. And yet, There's a light that is shining. And it's not simply the light of what we see in Genesis 3, the the hope of a Savior, but the light of redemption of Christ who has come and has achieved everything needed to crush the serpent's head, to bring an end ultimately to evil and suffering and to usher in heaven on earth for all those who will turn from their sin and entrust themselves to him. We pray, Father, that if there's anyone here this morning or anyone listening who has not done that, turn from their sin and entrust themselves to Jesus, please grant them grace to do so. And for all of us who have, prepare our hearts to receive your Lord's Supper and to celebrate the crushing of evil and the hope that is ours to come. Please prepare our hearts now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.